This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them up, please, to Revelation 15. Revelation 15. And while you do that, let's, let's huddle up again. Last time I was with you, I mentioned the fact that this past year has forced Christians and pastors, especially uh, all over the world, to, to rethink what the scriptures teach about church. And uh, it's an opportunity for us to do the same. What, what do the scriptures teach about church? And uh, one of the things that I mentioned last time is that this, this concept of online church is a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction in terms. It's as close to a married bachelor as you'll ever find. And uh, the reason for that is the fact of the matter is the only authoritative teaching we have on the church recognizes just one legitimate manifestation of church, and that's a flesh and blood gathering. In a technological age, this makes things complicated, doesn't it? So uh, one of the most frequent statements I heard, particularly during the 14 Sundays we didn't gather and even periodically since then, is the statement, it's just not the same. It's just not the same. Watching church on TV just isn't the same as being there. And actually, the person who's saying that is is poking at something more profound than they may realize. So I want to press into this a little bit. Why is it watching church on TV is just not the same as being together as a flesh and blood gathering. Why is that? Um, In Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read this from the ESV because it captures a little bit better the original. The Apostle Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we've got a little bit of a Greek lesson to do here. Um, The Apostle Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. So this word is a present present tense, (laughs) imperative mood, passive voice, verb. Write it all down. Come on, go ahead. Present tense, Passive voice, imperative mood. Now, the imperative part's probably the easiest thing to, to figure out. Imperative means what? It's a command. All right? So you're, you are to be filled with the Spirit. That's not optional. That is a command. You're to be filled with the Spirit. Present tense conveys with it continuousness. You are to be continually filled with the Spirit. You are to be continually filled with the Spirit. And then this, we've got this funky thing. We've got this passive voice stuff, which means this is not something you do for yourself. It's something that's done to you. Something that's done to you. Something that's done to you. And of course, this is the work of God. It's called a divine passive. It is God who continually fills his people with the spirit. Now, we've got the rest of these words in here we have to deal with. Did you hear all the ING words? 
addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That, those are all what are called adverbial participles. They modify the main verb of be filled with the Spirit. In other words, God is saying to us, yes, I'm the one who continually fills you with the Spirit, but I use means to accomplish ends. I use means to accomplish ends. And when you engage in these things, you create the conditions for me to do that work in you. And of course, all those ING words are within the context of the gathered church, the flesh and blood gathering of the church. So one of the reasons I think people have been saying it's just not the same is that they're, they're poking at something. They're recognizing something palpable is missing when we don't gather and that's this work that God does in the context of the gathered church. So we're going we're gonna to be thinking about this in the weeks to come. I've got, I don't know, I've got six or seven or eight more of these um, written out. We'll see how many we get through. But um, we'll, we'll think about this together. Why is it it's just not the same? Why is it just not the same? That's one of the, one of the reasons for it, one of the many reasons for it. Okay, Revelation we're in Revelation 15 and 16. Let me back up here. We've got to grab context. Revelation 12, what does it do? It pulls the curtain back, and it lets us see the reason for the church's difficulties and hardships throughout the centuries. Hey, we might say, well, it's interference from government, or it's the persecution of this group or that group, whatever it may be. We may, we may think of it that way, but, but in Revelation 12, God says, actually, there's a deeper reason for it. The, the fundamental reason for the church's struggles in every age is the rage of Satan. We're engaged in a cosmic spiritual war. That's the reason for the church's hardships and difficulties. If you just say it's government, you're not looking deep enough. It's the rage of Satan. Now, Revelation 13 comes along and says to us that, that, that the dragon, Satan, works through two henchmen. And that is the beast from the sea, which is likened to the state, and the beast from the land, which is false, the false prophet, false ideology, false religion. The dragon Satan works through two henchmen to execute this rage against the church. And the way in which these two beasts work make it clear to us what the goal of Satan is. The goal of Satan is to get believers to fear and to be deceived. That's how those two beasts work. Their fundamental operation, beasts from the sea, is to get Christians to be afraid, to fear. And the beast from the land, the false prophet, is all about deception. Put something out there that looks good, that sounds good, and get them to run after it. Revelation 14 could be considered Revelation's sermon. It describes both the euphoric joy of heaven and the grisly reality of eternal punishment. And one of the most striking takeaways we glean from, from that chapter is sin is much worse than we think it is. And the reason we don't think it's that bad is that our own sinful condition works against us, preventing us from being able to see it for what it is. Our own sin always puts a positive spin on the way we see sin. It, it puts a glossy veneer over the surface of it. So we never, ever, ever look at sin and see sin for what it truly is. It's much worse than we ever think it is. Now, today, we comb through this final series of judgments. 
We looked at the seven seals in chapter 6. We looked at the seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. Today we have the seven bowls. And I know what you're thinking. Every, guy that, every time this guy shows up, he's talking about judgment. Every time this guy shows up, he's talking about judgment. Not my agenda. It's in the text. We've got to talk about it. Now, one of the reasons, uh, there are a couple of reasons I think th- this idea of divine judgment has gone missing in American evangelicalism today. First has to do with the way the book of Revelation has been primarily understood since the 1800s. Since the 1800s, the book of Revelation has been primarily understood as communicating to us events that take place in the distant future. Only those things that take place right before the end. Well, what happens when your approach to Revelation is that? How much applicability does it have to your life now? Do you concern yourself with it? If it's only talking about the future, it might be an intellectual curiosity. But why mess with it? We've got Galatians sitting there. We've got Romans sitting there. That's for the here and now. Revelation's for the distant future. So the idea of divine judgment in American evangelicalism has disappeared largely over the last 200 years because we've, we've, we've jettisoned revelation to the distant future. It receives less of our attention and much less of our application. The second reason, though, that divine judgment just kind of has gone extinct in American evangelicalism has to do with our therapeutic age. During the last 60 years in particular, uh, the United States has taken a sharp turn towards the therapeutic. That is, we're not so much interested in salvation. We're interested in psychological well-being. That's what we're primarily interested in. We're not really interested in salvation. We're interested in psychological well-being. Well, how does the theme of divine judgment play (laughs) in a world that's just looking for a psychic health an emotional health, feeling good, doesn't play very well. And so some of this has been a capitulation to the culture, which is why God's word is so good. We need to preach through it. And we need to teach through it from beginning to end because it's going to raise issues that we really, really need to hear. So let's walk through this together. Revelation 15 and 16. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them, God's wrath is completed. Now, there are a number of ways in which this is approached and has been approached throughout church history. As I mentioned to you before, I think Revelation primarily is giving us pictures of the church age. It's not only dealing with the future. It does deal with the future. But it's not exclusively the future. It's giving us pictures of the church age from different angles. The seals, the trumpets, I believe, do that. Now, there are some who contend that the bowls still do that as well. They're giving us pictures of the church age, from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' second coming. There are those, though, who, when they come to the bowls, in light of how verse 1 is phrased, will say, you know what? It seems that the bowls are all happening at the end. Let me give you one pictorial um, depiction of this so you get a feel for how this might be understood. A number of scholars will say the seven bowls are actually contained within the sixth and seventh seal and the sixth and seventh trumpet. 
And as we looked at the sixth and the seventh of each of those, we saw that is the end. That's the final judgment. Those are the events leading up to the final judgment. So you've got all seven bowls jam-packed at the very end. That makes interpreting it a little bit challenging because you're left having to make decisions about what is metaphorical, consistent with apocalyptic literature, and what is literal. This is how it's going to be at the end. I'm not going to solve all that for you. Suffice it to say there are lots of similarities between the bowls and the trumpets. Bowls and trumpets have a lot of similarities. And you'll recall the Exodus plagues, the Exodus plagues serve as the Old Testament backdrop for those. So it might be helpful rather than just trying to, to figure out every word and every detail, just take a step back and say, what is God doing here? Well, what was God doing with the plagues on Egypt, on Pharaoh in Egypt? On the one hand, he's judging them for their works. On the other hand, he's using that to save his people. That might be all that we need to know. Verse 2, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. So this sea of glass is the same that we saw in chapter 4. We're given a picture of the throne room of God. You remember that? Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now remember, for land lovers like Israel, the sea was the place of chaos and instability and evil. The fact that a beast comes from the sea makes perfect sense to the Jewish mind. But notice here, it's quieted. It's still. It's peaceful. Chaos, instability, evil has been put down. And the entire community of God's people are gathered around it. And they sing, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And what are they responding to? The whole throng of heaven is responding to something. They're responding to both God's judgment and salvation. Remember the verses that immediately precede this song talk about the seven angels with the seven bowls of God's wrath, which are about to be poured out in chapter 16. And we have this image of the community of God's people gathered around the throne. See, the fact of the matter is salvation comes through judgment. You can't get salvation without judgment. Think about Noah and his family. Their salvation came through the judgment of the world. Think about Israel and Egypt. Salvation of Israel came through the judgment of Egypt. Think about the cross. Our salvation comes through the judgment of our sin that was placed on Jesus. Salvation comes through judgment. Verse 5, after this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. 
So the judgment of the seven bowls is emanating from heaven. This is why the community of faith are able to declare that the judgments are just and true and righteous. Chapter 16, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. We're not going to get wrapped up, as I mentioned, in trying to figure out the metaphorical or literal sense of this. The least we can say that this causes anguish. But for that reason, but for what reason does God set his judgment in motion? What does the text say? It's idolatry. Those who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person. Every living thing in the sea died. Now the second bowl and the second trumpet have a lot of similarities. The only difference is the second trumpet is limited in its effect. Here the effect is total. If it's metaphorical, this could simply be economic collapse, total, complete economic collapse. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, this is the second song. If you look at the bigger picture, you've got a song in chapter 15. You've got a song in chapter 16. And once again, the song is declaring the justice and righteousness of God in judging the world. It's the theme of both songs. Because you have these horrifying judgments taking place, but you've got the community of heaven affirming the fact that this is done with justice, with righteousness, and God is true to do this. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Notice it's unbelievers who are the recipients. Notice that at the end of the trumpet judgments in chapter 9, this same thing occurs. There's still time to repent. God issues these judgments as a great mercy to provoke people to repentance. They curse God and they spurn the idea of giving him glory. Same sort of thing happens now in verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Refuse to repent. God is giving them opportunities to repent. God's judgments are a great mercy. Now in verses 12 to 14, the judgments take on a spiritual component. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Remember, that's where trouble comes from. Euphrates, metaphorical, that's where trouble comes from. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. We've got a false trinity here. A parody of God. They are demonic spirits that perform signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. 
So there's an economic component to judgment. There's a physical component to judgment. There's a spiritual component to judgment. Verse 15, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Now, verse 15 is remarkable because Jesus himself breaks into John's vision. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking. He breaks into John's vision and speaks, assuring us that he will come unexpectedly, appearing to his enemies the way a thief comes in the night. Now, this is timely. The verse is timely, given the flow of thought in chapter 16. Because it answers the question about what Christians are to do while we await the awesome events that will come at the end. See, some might conclude that the end is safely in the distant future. But Jesus directly confronts that attitude, urging instead constant vigilance. He's saying, don't get too settled. No, 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 no. Don't go looking for all these signs and things you think have to happen before I come back. Don't think you've got it figured out. Verse 16, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. In Hebrew, the word Armageddon means Mount Megiddo, which is curious because Megiddo was a plain, not a mountain. Just like references to other places in Revelation, like Babylon and Euphrates, I don't think we should see this location as literal. There were numerous battles that took place in the plain of Megiddo in the Old Testament, but that's probably all this mention of Armageddon is doing. Greg Beale, who uh, wrote a monstrosity of a commentary, it's about a thousand pages, I think, on Revelation, writes, the battles in Israel associated with Megiddo and the nearby mountain become a typological symbol of the last battle against the saints in Christ, which occurs throughout the earth. So don't locate this geographically. We get really preoccupied with the Middle East, the Middle East, the Middle East. I don't know that we should. I think the battle will be bigger than that. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge, from the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of the hail because the plague was so terrible. So the seventh of each, as I've mentioned before, wraps it up. It's the end. This is the final judgment. The seventh trumpet, the seventh, seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl. And then in all of them, we have this reference to flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Go back to Revelation 4. Therefore before me was a throne, there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. 
They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Now, when we looked at Revelation 4, I talked about the fact that this imagery portrays the power and the authority of God. But by the time you finish reading Revelation, the repetition of this imagery makes you want to go back and reread chapter 4. Because it's more than God's power and authority. It's his power and his authority as the supreme judge of the world. So when we sing Revelation song and the words flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder come off our lips, we're not just singing about a physical beauty of God. We are actually declaring God, the all-powerful God, to be the judge of the world. Now, it's striking to me the way this ends, that even up to the last moment, there's still time to repent. But they don't. Why? What does this tell us? Let's talk about application. Two points of application. What God's judgments do for humanity and what God's judgments say about God. What God's judgments do for humanity and what God's judgments say about God. First, what God's judgments do for humanity. There's two things I want to draw your attention to. The first is that God's judgments are expressions of patient pleading to repent. They're expressions of patient pleading to repent. I have said this time and again. Every catastrophe, every natural disaster, every tragedy, every bitter experience of suffering in the world and in your life is God giving you a warning and a wake-up call to repent. Now, there are other things going on in all of those. But in each, God is doing at least this. It's a call to repent. It's a call to keep repenting. Yes, the bold judgments are directed at the unbelieving world, not believers, but the church is the one reading the book. The book of Revelation wasn't written for the world. And we know from chapters 2 and 3 that there are numerous professing Christians in the church who need a loving but firm warning to repent. See, it is important that we see the purpose of hardships and trials in our lives. There are numerous purposes, of course, But one unique thing Revelation is teaching us is that those are for the purpose of calling people to repentance. So don't hesitate to make mention of that in your interactions with people. Don't hesitate to turn to a hard-hearted friend or family member going through a tough time and say to them, maybe God's trying to get your attention. See, there are numerous heart motivations the New Testament writers appeal to when they're urging people to repent. Numerous heart motivations they appeal to. Relieving the burden of guilt, freedom from shame, the blessings of heaven, satisfying a deep sense of need, just to name a few. But judgment is also a heart motivation the New Testament writers use in appealing to people to follow Christ. Judgment is coming. Follow Jesus. Now, we don't tend to utilize trials and hardships in this way in America because we all have a tendency to idolize safety and comfort. We work hard to avoid hardship. Sometimes I wonder if we should be a little less protective, a little slower to rescue people under duress. I have my own helicopter parenting tendencies that are not good for my kids. The fact of the matter is God's judgments in the form of economic scarcity and civil strife and personal suffering are his patient pleading with us to repent. Now, that's not all this text is talking about when it deals with God's judgments and humanity. They also, secondly, reveal the true condition of the human heart. 
They reveal the true condition of the human heart. A pastor and friend of mine once, mentor of mine once said that you don't see people's true colors until they get squeezed. You know what I'm talking about? You don't see people's true colors until they get squeezed. You don't really know someone until the heat's turned up or they're backed into a corner. Only then will you see their true colors come to the surface. And Revelation is showing us that. What's happening is God's judgments are coming out. What are people doing? Are they saying, please, God, we repent, we turn. What are they doing? No. They're giving God the bird. They're cursing him. This, for me, resolves some of the cognitive dissonance over, quote, unquote, good people being recipients of God's judgment. Now, when we say that, we've got to remember what Jesus said. Why do you call me good? Jesus said. Only God is good. Okay? We are not, but we use that in language. And I know what people mean. Good people, nice people. How can, how can so-and-so, who's so nice, but isn't the believer, deserve God's judgment? Well, do you know what's underneath the smile and niceness? How do you know what's underneath there? Have you ever seen them squeezed? Truly squeezed? with American individualism firmly in place, most of us don't live in proximity to people outside our immediate family where we see them get squeezed. Revelation is teaching us we might be surprised by what we see. I know I'm surprised by what I see in myself when I get squeezed. When God sanctions a tragedy in that kind, unbelieving neighbor of yours, don't be surprised if the response is one of cursing God. Don't be surprised. Several years ago in ministry, I, uh, there was a, a gentleman I knew in our church, a previous church, and uh, he was, yeah, he'd attend you know, once or twice a month, and, and he was very, <laughs> talking to me, he's very, uh, he always reminded me of a sloth, the, the animal, the sloth, so he's very slow in talking, very soft in talking, and this guy's lovable little fuzzball, I mean, it's just... He came into my office one day, and this was a different person. He was angry, and he was yelling. His girlfriend, who was pregnant, had lost the baby, and he was just dripping with rage. And it took me three or four minutes, because he's just going on and on and on and on. And I'm just sitting there listening to this. And, I, and I'm trying to, this is the guy. You know if the Packers are on TV today. And he is just going off. And I thought, this is, this is strange. That, in fact, was where this teaching and revelation became reality for me. I realized, you know what? I, I don't know. I don't know people. You don't know people. You don't know people. How often are you surprised by what you see in your spouse? <laughs> uh, you don't know people. You don't know people. I didn't know this particular gentleman was capable of that kind of bitterness and rage against God because that's exactly what he was doing. So, one of the things that God's judgments do is they reveal the true condition of the human heart. Second, what judgments, what God's judgments reveal about God? Three things, very quickly. Number one, his love for himself. God's love for himself. In both songs, 
in Revelation 15 and 16, which proclaim the, the just judgment of God, emphasize the holiness of God. Now, we need to pause here for a minute. We need to think through the holiness of God. What does it mean that God is holy? Normally, when we think about the Ten Commandments, we think of them as giving us, human beings, a pathway for living a holy life before the Lord. The Ten Commandments are what holiness looks like in the life of the believer. But as we look at them, you've got to remember something. These are not arbitrary. God didn't select these randomly. He wasn't bored one day and just decided to, to generate some sort of eclectic to-do list. No, there is tremendous logic between the Ten Commandments and the being of God. In other words, the Ten Commandments are an expression of his holiness. They are a natural outworking of his essence and being. So to break one of the commandments isn't to break an arbitrary rule. It's to personally violate the eternal triune God. Because the commandments are not external to God, but rather a manifestation of his very essence and being, disobedience isn't a code violation. It's cosmic treason against the creator God. All sin, all sin is a personal offense committed against God for this reason. Now, Jesus comes along and he pushes this even farther when he summed up the entire law by saying what? The entire law is summed up in what? Loving God first and loving neighbor second, right? Love God first, love neighbor second. So holiness is really about rightly prioritized love. Holiness is loving the right thing to the right degree in the right manner. Holiness is about loving God first and loving, loving neighbor second. That's holiness. And listen. This holiness is something God lives out perfectly because he's holy, holy, holy. God loves God first. 1 John 4, 8 is a verse many kids memorize as they grow up in the church. God is love. And that's good news. But the way in which the modern world relates to this tweaks the verse a little bit. When we read it with sin's gravitational pull exerting its force back on ourselves, we assume God is love means God loves us most. God loves mankind most. Let me tell you something. If God loves mankind most, he's no longer holy. He's an idolater. He's broken the first commandment. In other words, he's contradicted his own essence. He's contradicted his own being. God is love is first and foremost a reference to the share, love shared among the three persons of the tripersonal God. God loves God. Or to put this differently, God supremely values that which is supremely valuable. What is supremely valuable? God himself. God supremely values that which is supremely valuable. That's the essence of righteousness. Now, I recognize that that's going to land on 21st century American ears in an odd way. Boy, that sure makes God sound egotistical. And I get it. If I stand in front of the mirror and I say, <laughs> Yeah, you know what? If I do that, what is that? That's the essence of vanity and all sorts of other things. 
But for God to do that in front of his son is the essence of righteousness. God supremely values that which is supremely valuable, which is himself. This is what it means to be holy and righteous. Now listen, the recipients of the first bowl judgment receive God's just recompense because of their idolatry. That is, they didn't give God his due. They didn't love him first and foremost. They loved created things more. God's love for himself will not allow him to ignore that. We'll get to this in a minute, but, but just like his love for his people and his creation will not let off the hook those who violate his people and creation, so too his love for himself will not allow him to let off the hook those who violate him. So one of the things that, that God's judgment is showing us is his utter commitment to the value of his own being in essence. Second thing God's judgment is doing is punishment for the wicked. After the third angel pours out the third bowl, he declares God's judgments to be just. Why? Because those receiving the judgments are those who have shed the blood of your holy people. We know from human experience, a judge who looks the other way is a corrupt judge. Yes? A judge who looks the other way is a corrupt judge. In both songs, Revelation 15 and 16, the justice and righteousness of God are emphatically affirmed. God doesn't look the other way. He does not look the other way. Miroslav Volf is from Croatia, grew up in the Balkans. He lived through the decimation of the Yugoslav Wars. Some of you remember those. Some of you know about them. Bloody and atrocious wars. He's a theologian. He's written extensively on the goodness of God's wrath and um, the place that that has in him being a God of justice. And he does so, I'm going to read this extensive quote. He does this with devastating force. Here's what he says. He says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss divine vengeance, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What I appreciate about Wolf is he's writing from a perspective most of us in the West don't understand. Most of us have never had to watch helplessly as our wives and daughters are raped in front of our eyes, only to have our husbands and sons' throats slit as an encore. Wolf contends the refusal to believe in divine vengeance requires the sheltered life of a quiet suburban neighborhood. 
It is no coincidence that the literature being written today that most strenuously opposes the notion of eternal punishment is coming from affluent nations where the rule of law prevails. Would we be writing such books if we were living in North Korea? Where rewards are given to your neighbors for outing you as a Christian and if you're not immediately executed, you're put in labor camps and those labor camp punishments are put out to you and the four generations that come after you. Would we hold to such views if we lived in Afghanistan where to convert to Christianity is treated as treason and a psychiatric disease which comes with it the loss of all property and institutionalization, a psychiatric ward that makes our hospitals look like five-star hotels? Would we advocate for a wrathless God if we lived in Somalia or Libya where few will forget the horrifying video of Egyptian Christians being beheaded on the beach by ISIS militants. I would agree with Wolf. The refusal to believe in divine vengeance requires the sheltered life of a quiet suburban neighborhood. God is not a corrupt judge. He won't look the other way. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Third, and last, we see in God's judgment his love for his people and his creation. You see, in many ways, his wrath is an expression of his love. His wrath is an expression of his love for his people and his creation. He doesn't walk away in disgust from his fallen creation. God loves his work. He loves his people. He loves his creation. And his judgment is his measured response to all that tears it down. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He says, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. So let me illustrate this. Imagine a married couple getting home from work one day and she walks up to her husband and she confesses that she's been having an affair. She's been having an affair. And the husband looks up briefly, looks her in the eye, and then just goes back to sorting through the day's mail. No reaction. What would you think? There could be a number of things going on there. Maybe you'd think, well, maybe he's been unfaithful to her too, and that's just kind of the nature of their marriage. It's one way to explain it. But what if I told you that this man had been absolutely 100% faithful to her? He's been perfectly faithful to her, and when she confesses her adultery, he responds as if he doesn't care. What if I told you what their marriage looks like? They sleep in different bedrooms. They don't talk to each other. They spend lots of time apart. There's no affection, very little interaction. They're married, but they live like singles who don't know each other. Would that help explain why he reacted the way he did? She confesses her unfaithfulness, and he doesn't care. Why? Because there's no love. He should be angry, but he's not because there's no love. The only way to get rid of the anger is to remove the love. See, in judging the world, God is saying to you, I'm not that kind of husband. I love you. I have and will fight for you. Nobody is going to get in the way of us being together forever. Nobody. 
So you see in this way, Revelation, with all its judgments, is a huge love letter showing Christians just how much God loves us, his creation, and how far he'll go to fight for us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help us remember that. That as grisly as these judgments are to read and to think about, they are a vivid and powerful manifestation of your love. You are a jealous God. You are zealous for your people. You love your people. You're committed to your people. And you will not let anyone or anything stand in the way of us being together forever. God, we thank you that you're that kind of God. And I pray that that would warm our hearts. In the hardest of times, when things are difficult, that you would allow us to remember just how committed you are to your people, that nothing will stand in the way of us being together forever. We worship you for that now in Christ's name. Amen.